0: Welcome, welcome to, welcome to The Bible Geek. I'm your host, Robert F. Price. Robert M. Price, host of The Bible Geek. Was amazing from each of the tribes of Israel. Of course, this was a pseudograph. I uh, he didn't write it. There's the incarnation of God. Why right? the specific number amazing book? The Bible, the Bible geek. Robert M. Price. Robert M. Price. Host the Bible geek. The Bible, the Bible, Bible, geek. The, Bible the Bible, the Bible, the Bible geek. Robert M. Price, Robert Price, Price, host the Bible. Bible Geek Robert M. Price here at your service. Uh, And, uh, of course, one of those big services is if you need help getting to sleep, this might do the trick. Okay, i got a bunch of uh, good questions. And uh, you might think, well, there probably are bad questions that he just skips. But uh, no, actually not. Uh, They're all quite well-informed and uh, perceptive. Mm, So let's get to some of them. Uh, this is from uh, let's see Jaron, and he saith, uh, requesting a Billy Graham voice. Uh, and as I'm doing this, Billy Graham's funeral is being conducted. And let me say what hear what I said on facebook um i never meant to mock billy graham and i hope you didn't think i was i've always been fond of him and uh it's just a friendly tip of the hat uh to him and to his memory now so uh here goes Uh, i recently finished reading second samuel and in chapter 12 verse 14 it says in the english standard version because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Here, Nathan is speaking to David, prophesying doom to a soon-to-be-born child for having Uriah the Hittite killed. Well, not that the kid had him killed, right? David did, of course. Uh, reading on in verses 15 through 18, the text states that the Lord afflicted uh, the child and he became sick and after seven days died this is interesting because going back to deuteronomy 14:16, god clearly states that fathers shall not be put to death because of their children nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers each one shall be put to death for his own sin that that always cracks me up. Uh, I, I know it just means if anybody has sinned, uh, they'll they might fear punishment, but their their kids are in the clear. But is uh, one way or the other, everybody's gonna die. Uh, if not for your your parents' sins, yours. Of course, it doesn't quite mean that. How do uh, how do apologists explain this contradiction? To me, it seems like God has just broken one of His own laws. Uh, well. Yeah, I don't know how apologists handle it. Uh, my guess is they would say it's um, a special case uh, and uh, that this isn't the general way of things. Uh, but I, I don't know if that would be cogent or not. Uh, I mean, I guess there's an exception to every rule, but it would seem like this is simply a clear case of what Deuteronomy has Moses say will not happen. So I think there is a contradiction. Why does it exist? That's what the biblical critic wants to know. Well, I think uh, that what we have here is, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in Deuteronomy. Uh, As many scholars say, you seem to have—and this also comes up in Ezekiel and Jeremiah—you have this notion that, yeah, people are complaining that, uh, I think Ezekiel puts it, uh, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. I don't know quite get that but I guess you know it's the fathers have eaten as I just did the pepperoni and anchovy pizza but the children have indigestion Uh, well um, then Deuteronomy Ezekiel and Jeremiah all say look that's not going to be the way it is and I think in Ezekiel it actually says what's implicit in all three of them that uh yeah this this your murmuring reflects the fact that this has been god's policy to punish one generation for what the previous one did as in uh, uh the 10 commandments uh, that uh god uh, loves the righteous but he'll punish the uh the uh sinners to the third and fourth generation right uh, and so yeah this was the policy but it's changing now you know you've heard was said to the men of old, but I say unto you. And uh, the story of David, though chronologically later than um, the Moses character is supposed to be, is based on this early earlier understanding that still existed in many of the stories. And um, so it, it just without thinking of, I mean uh, the. The the, uh, books of Samuel are part of the Deuteronomic history, compiled by the same people that compiled the the prophets, or wrote some of them, Uh, but um, assuming there was some kind of uh, traditional or legendary basis to the uh, David and uh, uh, Bathsheba story, Uh, that one just, uh, didn't have any awareness. It just took for granted that one generation suffered for the sins of a previous one. And, uh, whereas when they're actually stipulating things in Deuteronomy, a law code, they're saying, this is not going to be the way anymore. And they, if they just, the compilers just didn't notice the problem, the anachronism, because if God really had stopped this policy, he wouldn't have made David and Bathsheba's, uh, Son die uh, right and it just didn 't occur to him because actually Deuteronomy and uh, uh, Samuel are um, more or less contemporary works and uh, there 's not really a a uh, the contradiction that it appears if you take it literally it is a contradiction uh, but uh, it 's like an unnoticed uh, glitch they're they 're describing things according to the old Policy of God that they figured was that the that's taken for granted in the traditional story of David and Bathsheba, but Deuteronomy, fictively attributed to Moses, is is uh, post David and trying to to change that belief. Okay. Uh, My second question relates to the readings I'm planning on doing in my quest to get a broader understanding of Christianity. As an ex-believer, I've made it a goal to reread the good book with fresh eyes and a different bias. Instead of assuming the book is truth, capital T, I now believe the book is not. Can you give me your thoughts on my process and the books I've chosen? And if there are uh, particularly fitting books you can think of, please let me know. My process for the Old Testament, RSV, Revised Standard Version, and ESV, English Standard Version, uh, what is that, the, uh, is that the new, no, no, I'm thinking of the Revised English Bible, I can't keep them all straight anymore, is to read an entire book and then read the corresponding sections in your book, Holy Fable, and James L. Kugel's book, How to Read the Bible. So, for example, I've just finished Second Samuel and will now put the Bible down and read what your book has to say about First and Second Samuel as well as what Kugel's book has to say. I'm not sure if you're familiar with James L. Kugel, and not all I know about him is that he was a professor of Hebrew at Harvard University. I found this book at a local used bookstore, and so far it has been interesting. If you know of him, can you tell me what your thoughts are on his work? I'm ashamed to say I have not read it, or if I did, I have forgotten. I know I had a copy of it many years ago, but I'm sure it's well worth reading. Uh, It's a good choice, and I appreciate your... uh, considering my humble efforts worth looking at. But I think this is a great idea to read the text and then see uh, what different perspectives can make of it. When I'm finished reading the Old Testament, I will cap it off by reading Margaret Barker's The Older Testament, and then I'm thinking I will move on to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the HarperCollins publication translated by Michael Wise and two others, before starting the New Testament. What are your thoughts about this? Does it make some sense, or should I read the Dead Sea Scrolls after I've read the New Testament? I think before is... It's a good idea. It certainly must have been written earlier, even if you think as Eisenman does, and I kind of do, that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls come from the uh, what became the Jerusalem Church. After I finished the New Testament, there are a truckload of books I plan to read, which I won't bother listening. Listing here, as all of them have been recommended by you on the show, but I would like to hear of any particulars that you feel are especially worthy. And then I'll move on to the Nag Hammadi scriptures, the translation by Marvin Meyer. That one you might actually be able to get through. I always found the previous uh, version uh, pretty. Dense. As a companion to this, I'll read the Gnostic Gospels by Elaine Pagels and Gnosis by Kurt Rudolph. Yeah, uh, great books. Um, Some of Pagels' books I'm not too impressed by, but I think she does a great job um, reading between the lines of the Nag Hammadi texts to infer what kind of groups created and cherished these texts as scripture, uh the Zitzim Laban. I, I think she's she's really uh, done a great job on that. And uh Kurt Rudolph's uh, Gnosis is no doubt the best book on Gnosticism. Uh yeah, great, great idea. Um oh let's see well you know I think Bauer and Bultmann and Eisenman are absolutely essential for the New Testament but as as you say you got a list of those uh, on my website the higher critical Hit parade and in my various uh, podcast ramblings then it's on to reading books on the subject of orthodoxy and beyond where I have St Augustine and beyond where I have St Augustine's City of God fundamentalism by James Barr, and the formation of Christian dogma by Martin Werner lined up ooh good stuff good stuff I will end this particular reading quest with The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James as a retrospection into the history of religion as a whole. All of the supplementary works I've listed are books I own, so they're readily available to me, but I'm curious to know what you think of the order in which I'm reading them uh, and the order... Um, in which I'm reading the scriptures. I think you've outlined a great program here. Uh, Jaron, I I really wouldn't suggest anything different. I wish more people would adopt the Jaron program, uh, which is why I've read the whole thing here. I think people uh, would find it a good example to follow. Okay. Uh, greetings and salutations from David in Australia. I was watching a TV cooking show this week that featured a Mandean family feast celebrating the son's baptism in the local river. The family were refugees to Australia from the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Uh, what is the origin of Mandeanism? What do they believe? Do they have scriptures? I understand they revere John the Baptist and that they're Gnostics. Yeah, all of that's true. Um, Bultmann believed that the Mandeans actually were the uh, latter-day descendants of the sect of John the Baptist, and that Mandean materials were used in the writing of the Gospel of John, the evangelist John, whatever his name actually was, being uh, a Mandean who switched allegiances from uh, John the Baptist as the real Messiah uh, and to uh allegiance to Jesus, whom they had believed to be the false messiah, as it says in Mandian scriptures. There there certainly are Mandian scriptures, and I'm not sure the best place to find them now. Um, uh, I, uh, there was a great uh, two-volume set uh, by, um, I think it's Werner Forster, F-O-R. E-R-S-T-E-R Gnostic writings, I think. Volume 2 was all translated Mandean scriptures, and it is... those are really fascinating. There are many striking parallels to the Gospel of John, and uh, Bultmann accentuated those and made a pretty good case, in my opinion, for John's Gospel being based on Mandeanism. And uh, Uh, and and they just are filled with striking images Uh, I I love this phrase which I'm thinking of using as a title for a science fiction story, the sword of the planets Uh, what is that? Well it has to do with the threat posed by the gnostic archons that guard the heavenly spheres to prevent the souls of human beings from reascending to uh, their natural home, the divine Pleroma Uh, they um, revered or worshipped various angelic beings uh, enosh uthras which uh, means uh, uh, the, uh, the the splendid or the glorious enosh one of the the patriarchs of the of genesis whose name means man and must have been the primordial man in um, in uh, Jewish legends hinted at in genesis and uh, oh uh, Pibilziwa, who who was Abel, uh, another one uh, was uh, uh Sitil, which is uh, Seth, Seth El, Seth God. And uh they're uh, really fascinating. And there's uh, the Kusta, whose truth em- embodied in a uh, personification and uh, manda Dhai, which means uh, life knowledge, the the saving knowledge. Uh, the, he's the real uh, savior who's incarnated in John the Baptist. Uh, really, really fascinating. I bet if you Googled Mandean scriptures, there's probably some edition I'm forgetting or never heard of. But uh, they they have a very complex. Um, gnostic doctrine in fact mandean means gnostic manda the high uh like haim, uh the the knowledge of life uh and um so they're, they're mandeans they're also call they call themselves though mandean is based on their scriptures their favorite name for themselves is nazareans which uh, ought to resonate right they're they're part of as as Rudolf says Kurt Rudolph, they must have begun among the in the milieu of the Gnostic baptizing movements in the Jordan Valley, uh, just the way John the Baptist's group is described in the pseudo-Clementines, with John as the guru and his his uh, disciples including Jesus, Simon Magus and Dosithius the Samaritan. Oh, what a fascinating thing! There's a great psychological demythologizing of Mandean mythology in Hans Jonas, J-O-N-A-S, the Gnostic religion, and their various books um, uh, in uh, on uh, the Mandeans. One, I think, simply called the Mandeans, but if you look that up, on Amazon, I'm sure they'd refer you to other ones as well. Uh, Lady Drower back in the earlier twentieth century uh uh wrote books about them. One called The Secret Atom, which is extremely interesting. Uh real fascinating stuff. Uh good luck to the Mandeans, like the Yazidis. I imagine they're always pretty tenuous uh, with uh shrinking population, but I sure hope we don't lose either one of those groups. Hey, um uh, let's see, John Novak Uh, says, I'm once again trying to learn ancient Greek, and I have two questions for the geek. You might say ancient Greek and ancient geek. Okay, one, I'm aware that in antiquity, Greek was written in all capital letters with no spaces in between the so-called unseals. Um, Was there ever really that much potential for confusion? I remember sitting in a Catholic uh, RCIA class and the deacon teaching us saying that there might be, but for a language as, heav- as heavily inflected as Greek, most of the time, isn't the ending of the word signified by a case ending? For example, doesn't seeing the letters uh, Ace together tell you to E, uh, Epsilon, Iota, Sigma together tell you to look for a root verb and, uh, that a new word starts after the sigma. Yeah, I think so. It, it's kind of rare when you, uh, when the context doesn't tell you, uh, it's, it seems to me like you, you cannot really suggest hopeless confusion based on that, but occasionally it does happen. And a famous example, I'm convinced as, um, Oh, boy, was it Rendell Harris or one of those guys back in the 20s? One of them pointed out that in First Peter, where it says that uh, he was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit in which he went to preach to the spirits in prison. And that uh, led to all kinds of speculations. Uh, what after his death, but before his resurrection, Jesus went to preach to imprisoned the imprisoned dead who were waiting for the resurrection. What was he preaching to him, and so on and so on? Well, uh, Harris or whoever said, if you take a close look at the text, uh, it's uh, it probably does not mean. Uh, see, in, in which he preached, rather no no spaces between them again. It meant to say and does say uh, he was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. En-ho-kay, uh preached to the spirits in prison. Enoch preach to the spirits in prison, which he does do in First Enoch, the book that's quoted in Jude, uh, that's an example, I think, of where that clears up the whole problem, and that would be exactly what you're describing, but it's pretty rare, I think. Uh, let's see, um, second question, I've also wondered how reasonable it would be to imagine Jesus as Excuse me, is depicted in the Gospels as a Greek speaker. I don't imagine him or the Apostles being literate, but how unreasonable would it be to posit at least some of the things he said in the Gospels as originally being said in Greek, either historically or strictly for narrative purposes? Something like, Thou art. Peter would definitely be Aramaic, but what about the Sermon on the Mount, or places where he is definitely addressing a non-Jewish or mixed Jewish-Gentile audience? That is a toughie. I- I'm more inclined to think that uh, where it doesn't seem to be readily Retro, what would just say retro translated back into a hypothetical Aramaic original, something that uh um uh Morris Casey and before him Joachim Jeremias used to do, um and C C Tory. Uh if you uh, where where it doesn't appear to work and it looks more likely that it's the statement was simply composed in Greek. Uh, then uh, my guess is it's just the creation of of a Greek-speaking evangelist or gospel writer. It it is possible, though, but it's very difficult to tell what the original audience would have been because you can't really trust the descriptions in the gospel narratives as to who he's talking to because sometimes one gospel writer will have uh, the same statement given to one audience and another one— having Jesus give it to another audience, Uh, and uh, that implies they're just fabricating that in order to uh, provide some narrative setting for the sayings that they had heard without any context, so it's possible, but I don't know how uh, one would make that look especially likely. Maybe a good example would be in the Gospel of John, the thing with uh, the dialogue with Nicodemus, where he says, um, uh, unless you were born anothen, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What does anothen mean? Well, it can mean again, or it could mean from above well, it's supposed to mean both because it gives Nicodemus an opportunity to misunderstand it. He says, well, Why not? Are you telling me a guy can go back into his mother's womb to be born a second time, that would be born again. And Jesus says, no, you're not getting it. Uh, and then he talks about being born of the spirit as opposed to being born of the flesh. Uh, okay, that's being born from above. Now, this pun does not work in Aramaic, only in Greek. So was Jesus um, speaking Greek to him, uh it seems unlikely. I mean, the guy's a member of a Sanhedrin. Uh, would he be? He might have known Greek, but if if he considered Jesus a rabbi, would he be speaking Greek? The same problem comes up in Mark seven, where Jesus rebukes the scribes and uh, and quotes. Uh, he says Isaiah put it perfectly when he spoke of you. He said, "This people honors me with their lips, uh, but it's." Um, uh, it's uh, teaching as a doctrine something, um, the commandments of men. Well, that's what the Greek Septuagint says, but it's not what the Hebrew says. And the Hebrew doesn't exactly fit the point Mark is trying to make. Uh, it says you are um, teaching, uh, you're you're honoring me with your lips but your heart is far from me your uh, your uh, piety is is like uh, I forget the exact wording but it's uh uh something learned by rote it's like vain repetition in the sermon on the mount Jesus would not be speaking or quoting the Greek Septuagint as an authority to Palestinian Jewish rabbis. Now, this is the work of Mark, uh, and uh, so sometimes this does come up. It, now, historically, it's it's plausible that uh, Jesus, and um, if you think he was a carpenter, I think there's no basis for that. I think that passage is misunderstood, too. But if he had been a carpenter, and if Peter really was a fisherman, these guys might easily have had business dealings with Gentiles and might know some Greek. So it's not out of the question. It's not like, did Jesus speak French some of the time? No, it, it's not absurd, but I don't know how you would uh, would make this um, probable. It's a toughie. Thanks, John. Uh, even if I didn't have a real answer, it's a good opportunity for me to bloviate. Okay, uh Moss from Liverpool in the UK. Um I grew up in the nineties in the UK. If you're going for an accent, a Liverpool Liverpudlian Beatles drawl would be spot on. Um, I caught the second scent of the last embers of the Satanic Panic. In so far as my mother saw Harry Potter as almost certainly influenced by the Dark Arts, all rock music and secular literature was suspect, and Pokemon was also probably tainted. It was only recently that I came across Chick Tracts, as they never really took off over here. Lucky you, and I was late for them anyway. As such, I look at them as reasonably, dis- as a dis- reasonably, reasonably dispassionate observer and per- and perplexed. It got me thinking about the wilder fringes of fundamentalism that can still be seen today. Uh, that heady brew of bigotry, conspiracy theories, and rapture talk. Jim Baker springs to mind. My question is, where did this stuff come from? I have some vague notion that the Schofield Reference Bible played a role in some doctrines gaining traction, such as dispensationalism. (laughs) You bet. You're exactly right. Did this influence the apocalyptic dread of later years? What about things like the Left Behind series? Was there ever any serious theological grounding for this type of stuff, or was it always a popular movement? Excellent question, Moss. The classic treatment of this is Edward Sandeen, S-A-N-D-E-E-N, The Roots of Fundamentalism, a great book uh, where he says that fundamentalism really uh, was the result of a kind of an alchemical anti-modernist, anti-liberal reaction it uh, it was a closing of ranks between two rigidly orthodox Protestant groups that uh, were different enough. It was surprising they, they came together. It's the same sort of thing that happened today. Uh, Jonathan Morris, uh, the Catholic priest on Fox News, was talking about Billy Graham's funeral and Graham himself. And he had nothing but praise to say about him. Uh, In the old days that wouldn't necessarily have been true. Uh, There was all the sniping between Roman Catholics and Evangelical Protestants. A lot less of it these days because they're having to close ranks against the tide of secularism and uh, and religious indifferentism. And so they, they now speak of each other as brethren and partners and all of that, which I'm glad to see. I remember Gordon Fee, a um, teacher of mine at Gordon Conwell, when he would talk about this or that issue, he'd say, well, our Roman Catholic brethren say this. Fee was an Assemblies of God preacher. Uh, and uh, you would never have heard that when he was, he was growing up. But there's a much more... Um, tolerant and well uh, you mentioned Jim Baker even in his uh, quarters rather extreme in other ways they were very um solicitous toward Roman Catholics because of the Catholic charismatic movement that kind of imported Pentecostal piety into Catholicism. So there's a lot of things going on, but that's kind of what happened back in the 20s with the dispensationalists, uh, like the Plymouth Brethren and many Baptists, who had absorbed dispensationalism from the Schofield Reference Bible, exactly as you say. And that was all that view of prophecy. Like if you're a dispensationalist, chances are you're really into prophecy and believing that the second coming of Christ is at hand, no matter how many decades or centuries or millennia pass. Uh, oh, yeah, he's coming tonight, I say. Um uh, that's uh these guys had prophecy conferences. There were loads of these. They were like the chautauqua uh uh mass meetings, but these were all fundamentalist uh, and uh, uh the okay that's one of the groups that produced modern fundamentalism. The other Sandine says was Princeton Calvinism. Uh, the the kind of reform theology taught in Prin- old Princeton, as they like to say, seminary by Archibald Alexander Hodge and uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield and uh, and others, and uh, before Princeton split into Princeton and Westminster and uh, so forth, and. These guys were not dispensationalists. They believed in covenant theology, which has a different understanding of the Old Testament and uh, whether. Uh, well, there's a, that gets into a lot of things, but uh, these they recognized that these things were secondary issues, still important because. Uh, like even even fundamentalists would fight among themselves over details of the prophetic timetable and whether the rapture would occur before, after, or during the tribulation. It's a fascinating thing, though. Now it seems pretty esoteric. Were they united in their opposition to liberal modernism and produced a series of pamphlets, soon collected into several hardcover volumes, uh, talk called the fundamentals, and leading um, dispensationalist and Calvinist authors, and some Arminian ones, Methodists, and all that, wrote on different topics to defend the traditional position against people like uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick and, and others. Right, and uh, uh, so fundamentalism, as we know it, came from that, though it has been evolving somewhat. The big watershed there was in the fifties and sixties with the dawn of the neo-evangelical movement. Uh, people like Harold John Ockenga, Carl F. H. Henry, Harold Linzell, uh E. J. Carnell, and others, uh, and and the and Fuller Seminary, which started about that time, and Billy Graham. He was a major. Uh, neo-evangelical because he was willing to work with uh, any Christian in his crusades, uh, something right-wing fundies couldn't forgive him for. Well, these guys got sick of the Polemical nastiness of uh, fundamentalism and uh, decided to and also the the cultural backwardness and the anti intellectualism uh, of fundamentalism and called for a new open view, a new consideration of many issues. Uh, though they still were pretty darn conservative. Uh, they themselves said they they had uh, unshakable orthodox theology, but wanted to be a bit more culturally and intellectually relevant. A lot of that was PR, but it did uh, create a bit more openness to cultural um, factors in general. Along about the uh, mid to late 70s, that mutated again into something called the Young Evangelicals, kind of short for the Young Turk Evangelicals, right? Especially Richard Cabadeau, uh, Donald M. Blesch, uh, Richard Mao, uh, Jack Rogers of Fuller Seminary, these guys were were more genuinely open uh and uh to to the influence of uh CS Lewis for instance an anglican who admitted that there was myth in the bible but he was still extremely traditional and uh and now um evangelicalism is beginning to um blur even more with more people believing in universal salvation uh, myths in the bible the legitimacy of homosexuality and feminism and so on but old time fundamentalism uh, basically arose out of those prophecy conferences uh, and and then the fundamentals the publication and it still does exist that's for sure but there's I tell you another thing that did it the Schofield reference bible was a study edition of the king james version and uh now that uh, Uh, There are loads of different translations of the Bible done by different evangelical and fundamentalist groups. The hold of the King James on the religious consciousness of Protestants has been severely shaken, and that, I think, has something to do with the more open stance, the the less hard-line, hard-shell type of fundamentalism. If I may uh, shamelessly plug my first book, Beyond Born Again, which is still available, Um, that's, uh, that goes into yet another way in which fundamentalism modified uh, in a kind of therapeutic humanistic direction. Uh, I call it the, the, hard religious line morphing into the soft religious line, and I think you might find that interesting. Uh, Jim Baker represents uh, the charismatic and Pentecostal movements, uh, and of course that's, that's also been a kind of fundamentalism, it just adds the speaking in tongues and prophecy and so on. But even it's not that far from old-time fundamentalism, because just as they had prophecy conferences, fundamentalists also had loads of what they call deep life conferences, where in a second experience of the Holy Spirit, the first being regeneration at conversion, uh, the second one being the baptism of the Holy Spirit, one would receive extra power for living the Christian life uh, victoriously. Uh, And that's all. I mean, some fundamentalists didn't buy it, but it it was... um, I don't think anybody was written off because they did espouse it, and it was major in fundamentalism, and still is. I suspect, though, that um, though it's less well-defined, fundamentalism will be with us uh, for a long time. Okay, uh, so uh hope you'll read some of those books. Uh, Sandine is really great in it. Okay, uh, David Oliver Smith here. I was having a discussion on the Jesus Mythicists vs. Jesus Historicists Facebook page about 1 Thessalonians. I noticed that at 1-1 the letter purports to be written by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy— Throughout the letter, we and us are used as the first person. However, at 2.17 through 3.6, the letter starts referring to I, Paul, and to speak of Timothy in the third person. I understand that 2.14 through 2.16 is thought to be an interpolation, um, because of an apparent anachronistic reference to the destruction of the temple as punishment of the Jews for killing Jesus. Is it also thought that this longer section wherein I, Paul and Timothy are spoken of is part of the interpolation also? Uh, Dave, generally speaking, I don't think so, but uh, then again, I'd have to check uh, Winsome and Monroe's great book, um, uh, authority in uh Peter and oh, I'm missing something in that title. Uh boy what is it uh, authority in Peter and Paul. Oh boy I, I I mention this all the time I'm just blanking. Uh and uh, they she shows how there's a lot more interpolation in the Pauline epistles uh, than uh, people usually like to admit. Uh, but I, I personally think that, um, though it's likely that Schmitt-Halts is right, and that the both Thessalonian letters are patchworks, uh, though I, I believe he says it, it was all stuff that Paul wrote to Thessalonica, uh, but they didn't keep uh, copies very well, and it's a confused mess, and that somebody tried to assemble the fragments uh, as best they could into coherent letters, and They knew there had to be at least two of them because there are different openings and all that. Well, but he thinks Paul did write all this stuff. I personally take any occurrence of I... Melvin, I, Poindexter, uh, whatever, uh, to be a sign of pseudonymity, because you're making, you're taking the trouble to assert who you are, uh, which nobody would do unless they weren't such a person, but wanted to be taken for them. Uh, I mean, the, the salutation is one thing, but internal I, Paul references to me smack of pseudonymity. um, but let's assume Paul did write the whole darn thing. Uh, the um, the tr- the transition between uh, all the gang, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, over to I, Paul, and speaking of Timothy as that guy, that seems to me not really problematical because I think everybody admits that that if Paul wrote it, he's just including his colleagues as a formality. He's really writing or dictating the letter, and uh, he knows that his uh, his uh, flunkies would agree with whatever he said. Uh, so, uh, so he he kind of forgets about that the further on he gets into the letter and just speaks for himself uh, overtly. Okay, Dave goes on. I was reading Ephesians and I noticed that the author says at four eleven. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Um, Is the reference to evangelists here a clue that Ephesians was written after the Gospels were written? Ooh, fascinating. I realize it just means bringers of good news, but wouldn't that have been included in apostles, prophets, and teachers if there were no written Gospels, good newses? Ah, uh, That's really interesting because it does take a kind of distant retrospective approach uh, to, to have these different classifications, apostles, prophets, teachers, uh, and he mentions the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and all that. That kind of sounds retrospective to me. And I have never thought of this, as with a great many other things you're perceptive enough to point out, uh, that evangelists might mean what it does um, in what we know are later references to gospel writers. Uh, that might well be another clue to it being pretty late. Fascinating. Okay. Uh, J- uh, Jaron, again from Toronto, Canada. Um, let's not just do a fake uh, offensive Canadian accent. I'm reading through your book, Holy Fable, the Old Testament Undistorted by Faith, eh? And I'm finding it both funny and informative. I'm learning many new things from the book, but there's one area that is particularly intriguing to me, and that has to do with biblical names. I never realized how obviously fictive hosers in the Bible have become to me when I discover what their names translate to. Uh, for example you state that david means hoser i uh, means beloved which is a fitting name for one who is a man after god's own heart as you address in your book it is possible that parents named him to mark their love for their infant however you go on to state that there's no one else with the name david in the bible implying it was not considered an appropriate name for mortal man Therefore, the name David is too convenient a name for this particular Hebrew child. Um, Okay, in the same way you break down other biblical names like uh, Ish-bosheth, which means man of shame. Saul, meaning asked uh, prayer and so on. Uh, Samson, the son, etc., And it quickly becomes clear that so many of these characters seem to be literary creations by ancient writers as a way of connecting them more intimately with the stories they're a part of. is what uh, Todorov, uh, or Todorov, however the heck you say it, uh, calls a narrative man. Somebody who is not even really a character, but only a narrative function personified. Fill in the blank. Uh, Uh, My question for you is this, how can a believer knowing what these names actually mean not realize that such people are most likely made up characters in a work of fiction, eh? Well, I I think that um, the reason for that is that some of them could actually be used as names, and so they figure well if the traditional literalistic reading is still possible then then that's the one i'm going to pick which is just confirmation bias right um uh, sometimes however they're a little too close to be coincidence and uh, this makes me wonder what other red flags i'm missing as i read my english translation of the bible like as i cannot read hebrew aramaic or ancient greek uh well there's there uh, if you get a hold of um of uh mythology among the hebrews by um what's his name Ignatz Goldseer G O L D Z I H uh, E R a great hungarian scholar of the Old Testament and Islam, uh, his in his book, he goes into a, a huge number of Hebrew names that seem to be uh, astronomically related, uh, that make sense, just like the Samson being the sun. There's loads more than that. Not all of them as clear, uh, because there's not as much narrative about some of them. But he makes what is, to me, a very convincing case that a whole lot of these characters in the Bible used to be heavenly bodies in stellar myths, the kind of thing my friend and colleague Acharya S. made a a bunch of, and rightly so. Uh, So yeah, it is a fascinating thing. These names are often uh, symbolic. Kind of makes you wonder about Jesus, too. Uh, Another Aussie, Paul Burton, Here in Australia, we've just recently had a voluntary marriage equality postal survey. As you can imagine, there was much campaigning, discussion and debate in the build-up to and in the fallout after the fact. 62% yes result. As you can also imagine, a large proportion of those promoting and supporting the no side of this argument uh, often claim to be standing on their religious, generally Christian principles. I've often read something like, the Bible makes it clear that uh, blank uh, or, or dot, 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 uh, homosexuality is a sin uh, and or God's perfect model for the family is a man and a woman. Quite apparent to me is how regularly such comments are unsupported by evidence from said Bible. Regardless, I'm wondering what does, does Scripture say about this subject? Is it indeed clear what the Bible uh, and in turn, gods, if such is your prerogative, his view is, or as I suspect, of the contradictory views communicated in various books and verses. What about any evidence for editing, interpolation, control, and censorship to change or develop the message and meaning pertaining to homosexuality and/or same-sex relationships uh, and/or marriage? Including scripture, ultimately not finding its way into the canon. Well, the classic instance of possible homosexuality uh, would be in the Secret Gospel of Mark, discovered or possibly fabricated by Morton Smith. Ah, boy, this is such a thicket of controversy. I personally am persuaded that Morton Smith did make this up as a kind of a trick to see if his scholarly colleagues could see through it. Uh, But I hope it's not true, because the secret gospel text, which is just supposed to be a couple of quotations from an otherwise lost edition of Mark's gospel in the second century um, it, It's I lost control of the sentence uh, I, I, it has so many interesting features that I, I would love it to be genuinely a part of this huge reservoir of early Christian data so I don't know, I kind of hope it's real but I doubt that it is in that, it seems to imply that uh, that, an, that Jesus is uh, shown initiating this kid he raises from the dead into the mystery of the kingdom of God in some sort of ritual connection in which both of them are naked. And uh, so some say that uh, that implies—I mean, there is ritual homosexuality in some religions and cultures— By that, I mean uh, that uh, it's not the norm. It's liminal behavior. Uh, There's like in rites of passage and, and things like that, where you're entering a kind of twilight zone between two areas, two stages of life. Uh, you do things that would ordinarily be forbidden uh, in order to mark the fact that you are passing over and thus, in a sense, becoming the the borderline between the two areas of normalcy. So even if you figure that in, uh, that is not even referring to homosexuality as a lifestyle or as a permanent orientation. Now, I don't personally. I don't think the the canonical scriptures, or as far as I know, uh, any of the pseudopigrapha or the uh, Nag Hammadi texts, the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't think any of them have any favorable reference uh, to, or even tacit acceptance of homosexuality. There are, whereas there are certainly, and and I, I doubt even if the uh, ancients viewed it in terms of. Uh, a lifestyle or an orientation it's pretty clear that the the scanty references in uh in the New Testament do not so view it um, it, it which is why in Romans chapter one, homosexuality is considered an abominable aberration um s- twisted and perverted behavior precisely because it's acting against nature, assuming everybody is naturally heterosexual. Uh, and uh, it's, it seems to me that had they known what we think we know about uh, people being naturally gay, lesbian, etc., that uh, they're, um, they might not have held the same view of it. I mean, there are people that uh, have done what is being condemned there. People say, what the hell? Uh, Let me try it out. At least I can say I've done it, etc. That's more what they're considering to be wrong. Now, is that even wrong? I'm not even getting into that, but uh, that seems to be what uh, the Pauline literature, well, in Romans 1, uh, what it imagines uh, about why it's wrong. There's a big bunch of uh, discussions of of male homosexuality in ancient writings in the New Testament era robin scroggs s c r o g g s in a book called the new testament and homosexuality go, goes into this and quotes a bunch of the stuff but he sa- and he says they often said well, it was like among writers it was about half and half, some defended homosexuality among males, some condemned it, but the the people that condemned it did so on the basis that it was unnatural. The same, sounds like the same sort of thing in uh, as in Romans, but there, there's more detail to the discussion, and they seem to be, what bothers them about it is that it's child molestation, that it's older and younger not that it's male and male. So uh, we, and I think Scroggs infers that perhaps that's what Romans is talking about as well. Uh, Oh boy, there's no way to know. I mean, this is very iffy. Uh, The uh, passages in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy do not seem to be condemning homosexuality in principle or in general, but rather uh, homosexual prostitution, uh, the, the words uh, malakoi and uh, arsenokoitai seem to refer to um, uh, to uh, homosexual prostitution of different types, but again, it, you can't really say because the word arsenokoitai, literally those who go to bed with men, uh, that could mean... Uh, men who go to bed with men, that could mean some... It depends on how you break down the word. It, it could mean male prostitute, or it could be uh, a customer of a male prostitute, But or it might simply be an attempt to translate what it says back in Leviticus 16, a man who lies with a man as with a woman. Who oh boy, what a mess. Uh, because the word arsenikoitai... And the word malakoi, soft ones, apparently implying effeminate and probably a reference to catamites, young male pampered call boys. Uh, These words are so rare in surviving ancient Greek literature, there's not much context to help us define them. So it's very ambiguous. Uh, I don't think you can find a, a clear case of approval of homosexuality. It gets messy because the Levitical prohibition of it is predicated not on moral but on ritual grounds, that uh, it is a, um, a transgression of the categories of nature just like you can't have incest because you, sex has to be a crossing legitimated by marriage uh, uh, from from the single to the married state. There's a bridge to build to make that transition, and that's marriage. But uh, if you have sex with somebody who is within your family, that's incest. You can't do it. It has to be the crossing of a line, outside of the family uh, it can't be older and younger that violates the um, barrier between older and younger childhood and uh, and adulthood um but it uh, it can't be homosexual because though it is a uh, it is it, it's within the same uh, same uh, group the same category And uh, you can't have bestiality, because though that does go outside of your category, it cannot be legitimated by uh, the bridge of a ceremony. Uh, And so it's really a, a kind of a a whole different thing it's not ex- i mean it's it's like in the same ballpark with kosher food it's it's ceremonial not moral properly so uh, what what are how relevant are these passages for christian ethics at least and uh, and it's it's just uh, some people say David and Jonathan were uh, were lovers like Achilles and Patroclus uh, because uh, David says my love for him is greater than that of a man for a woman that doesn't necessarily mean they were homosexuals though it might. I mean oh boy the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah thing in my opinion is not even about homosexuality so the best you can say uh, if you're you're pro gay as I am uh, I'm not gay I'm pro though uh, pro gay uh, is that there's that there is no unambiguous um condemnation of homosexuality from a Christian standpoint but it's a mess as many 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 things connected with the bible are but i don't know uh, please correct me if i've forgotten something here but i don't know of any uh, approval of this uh, in in the uh, in ancient christian or jewish sources maybe there is but of course i do not regard these things as binding authorities anyway okay thanks paul mm-hmm. Let's see, us see, this is from uh, David D. Perlmutter, a loyal Bible geek. In your podcast... Um, 17-049 you talked about some speculations about the future development of the Catholic Church with some novels and such within some novels and such like uh, Brian Moore's Catholics and stuff like that Um, I really would love to hear your take on the future of various religions what do you think the Catholic Church the Protestant churches and other faiths like Judaism, Buddhism and Islam will be like 2,000 years from now or perhaps a hundred years from now has anyone speculated that religions follow some natural evolution you've said in the past that there seems to be a universal tendency of a religion to be founded as a reforming faith uh, it's much more open, it's much more egalitarian, and then over time they get more bureaucratic, more hierarchical you also pointed out that in quite a number of religions there's an inevitable split between the people who are the genetic descendants uh, of the founder and people who are the organizational inheritors of the institution there's like, you're going with the companions of the prophet or the, uh, the relatives of the prophet, you're going with um Joseph Smith Jr or one of the the apostles appointed by him are you going with uh with Dean Muhammad or Elijah Muhammad's Lieutenant Louis Lewis, Lieutenant Lewis Farrakhan. Yeah. Um, is there any predictability about the way that religions develop over time? Edward Gibbon made the comment that if Peter the Apostle had stepped into the Vatican circa 18th century, he would politely inquire what religion was being worshipped therein. Do you think of a do you think a Christian of 100 AD would recognize the faith being practiced in an American church today? If we walked into the Vatican 1800 years from now, would we recognize the faith being practiced as Catholic? love to hear your general speculations, how religions change over time. Well, there, I'd say the biggie is that you do have a reassimilation into the surrounding culture. Um, By the very nature of the game, new split-off sectarian movements are rejecting the the current mores and values of society, and... uh, In order to do that and stay together, they have to have a real strong faith so as not to be diverted from it, distracted, tempted back into what would be an easier existence. But um, despite that radical commitment, as soon as the uh, original generation passes it on to their children— uh, and well, as soon as they have children, they're going to realize that there's some aspects of society uh, they they just can't reject, and the and so they begin to assimilate again to the the family structure, its duties, its responsibilities, and from their community values and all of that. And so inevitably, there is a um, a return to general social mores if the group is egalitarian to begin with that is likely to uh to pass away as well because traditional family unit structure Uh, returns the encratites rejected that because they rejected marriage and look what happened to them in modern times the shakers did that very thing they were a modern encratite group a celibacy gospel group Uh, they're gone there are no more shakers some of their furniture but uh, that's about it Uh, and so you you're you're implicitly apocalyptic if you're sectarian you can't maintain the original spirit and mission of the group if history continues. You're just not going to be able to do that, and so you're going to reassimilate to the society, and the eschatological fervor is going to dissipate. You may think, well, eventually Christ will come back, or the Mahdi, or whatever, but in the meantime, those who die go to heaven. One day there'll be a final judgment and a resurrection, but you, you've really pushed all of that stuff to the side. Original summonses to give up property and all that stuff, uh, uh, nobody's going to do that anymore. They can't. It'd be, uh, as the pastoral epistles say, you'd be worse than an unbeliever if you gave away all your resources to the poor instead of feeding your family, right? And, uh, so that's going to pass away. Now, uh, male-female equality becomes eventually in societies part of the general social values like it has in the United States uh, today. Uh, This is a big change within the last 40 years, right? And uh, biblical feminism changed a lot of things. And uh, so as the general culture evolves, the even sectarian movements will evolve with them because they're always a kind of a reaction against whatever is going on in the mainstream culture. Uh, Let's see. And this will... Whenever there are revitalization movements, like uh, the radical uh, Islamists today... Why are they there at all? Well, they're trying to halt and reverse this process of of the religion becoming more at home in the world. They remember the sectarian, radical origins and are trying to get back to them. And they're going to make some trouble uh, as they do so. And uh, of course, the 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 ISIS groups and all that—they're trying to. They're apocalyptic and trying to change the world into the millennium, uh, which is why they're doing the violence and stuff. They realize that if they didn't, uh, the same thing would happen. Muslims would become more assimilated to modern Western ways, and Islam would tend to uh, evaporate. It becomes just a hobby, like religions tend to be and pluralistic Modern societies, but I think that uh that cycle will continue and continue, and you 're going to have uh, uh Islam eventually become enculturated everywhere, and uh just it 'll be exactly like Jews today. there are different types of Jewish groups, different customs and theology. But uh, their their big danger is assimilation, right? They'll intermarry and, and just disperse that way. Now, that's a, a danger that faces all religions, that uh, as they come to know each other in a pluralistic culture— they're, they're going to find it difficult to believe that, well, I'm lucky enough to be in the right religion. I'm going to heaven. You, my friend, however, going to hell. It's just very difficult. The closer you are to somebody to believe, I'm sorry, buddy, you, you're going to fry and torment forever because you're not a Christian like me or a Muslim like me, etc. Uh, and so you're going to have more and more of uh, intermarriage in pluralistic societies, which will press toward effective secularism, uh, because there is no longer a single theological sacred canopy uh, to control and provide all of the uh, the mores, values, and and beliefs, the beliefs sanctioning the uh, the uh, the behaviors, the laws, etc. We've already come to that point. We did long ago, at least in the 50s or so, when we um, decided to have in common not Judaism, Protestantism, and Catholicism. It's too late for that. Uh, But Americanism, the civil religion of patriotic America. Now in our culture, that is falling away in favor of internationalism, open borders and all that. It sure is in Europe and all that. Uh, So uh, what's going on? What is eventually going to happen? It may be that we live in one world, though I doubt it. I think that would really be centuries from now, as in Star Trek, because there are just too many differences between the cultures and all that. Uh, but um, within nations, within cultures, I think you will have the type of secularism we had in... in. Uh, civil religion, only without any kind of reference to God. And uh, as long as that lasts, and again, it may not, uh, but as long as it does, people will—their their individual religions will fall back to have the, the secondary status of one's ethnic origins— like, I am uh, Irish, Scotch-Irish-Welsh with a little dab of Serbian in there. That doesn't mean much to me. I mean, I, I'm pleased to to be part of those groups, but I'm an American. Uh, and uh, I, I think that that's what's going to happen. The, the religion is going to be just something seen as part of the culture, as many people do anyway. I've had college students that say, well, I can't really... Uh, open up to any criticism of religion because if I did it would be betraying my, uh, my parents and my relatives and uh, Father O'Malley and so on. They, they view it simply as a cultural inheritance anyway though they also think it's true which is kind of an illogical uh, thing. But eventually it's just going to be the cultural heritage and uh, that, that's what I think religion will become more and more of a superficial ceremonial thing if that uh, let's see, any th- other big thing? Well, uh, uh, there'll be liberalization in the Catholic Church. I think eventually you're going to have women priests and married priests. It would not surprise me if you had, uh, as, as you do in some quarters, uh, theological modernization, uh, They that they might make transubstantiation, sort of a elective belief you don't have to do it uh, again i think uh Brian Moore's Catholics um, novel or movie is really great in depicting that as well as the the problems that come about from it uh buddhism has evolved drastically in its uh what 1500 to uh, 2500 years of belief and probably will continue to do so even fundamental Core beliefs have changed drastically in the transition between Theravada to Mahayana Buddhism. Um, Hinduism always has plenty of uh, uh, room for innovation. As far as we know, every version of Hinduism that is, if you want to even call it that, I mean, that's an outsider designation, every form of religion in India that ever existed still does in an identifiable likeness. Uh, they it, it isn't like the whole thing changes, and there may be yet more of them. Who knows? Uh, there are movie stars who have cults of worshippers and so on. I mean, we pretty much have that without saying. In, it in the United States so I think it'll be a long time before we get past religion which I know you're not, not asking uh, about but um, I think uh, it'll thin out and become and survive in the corners left to it and there's no reason it would uh, ever stop I mean, you gotta keep in mind what Clifford Geertz the anthropologist said that everybody is troubled by certain conundrums. Why is there adversity? Why is there injustice? And how do we deal with ignorance of of major things? Like, is there life after death? What? Uh, Is there justice? And so on. And religion is the way of of, uh, salving those wounds by positing an adjacent Invisible, larger realm in which all these things have answers we'll we'll know when we get to heaven, but in the meantime it's at least better than nothing if we believe we will one day know, don't know now, but one day, okay, I guess I can rest easy with that. That's never going to change, right if human nature and the conditions of the world. Uh, don't change it. Maybe on another planet people are different, but that's never going to change, and so I suspect there always will be religion. It'll take a long time before the... I mean, look at the religions that are in, in some danger. Jainism, uh, the Yazidis, the, the Mandeans, and so on. There's just not that many of these people. Uh, and, but as long as they're big groups, I'd say of the major religions today, uh, the one that has the biggest challenge is Judaism simply because of the danger that all rabbis recognize of intermarriage and assimilation. But Jews have faced that for thousands of years and have, have uh, survived it. So, you know, they're they're always going to keep doing so and more power to them. I love Judaism and would, uh, would hate to see it pass away. Of course, it wouldn't in my lifetime anyway. So, uh, my throat's getting sore, so I guess that's about it for today's Bible Geek. I appreciate your being with me, and uh, hopefully, this one will be posted pretty darn soon. And I'll see you soon also in the next exciting episode of uh, The Bible Geek. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Haha, in my dentist's office.